Hello everyone, this is Jorge Fascinetti, and you're listening to another exclusive podcast from Pituitary World News. I'm here with Pituitary World News co-founder Dr. Louis Blevins, who is also the director of the California Center for Pituitary Disorders at the University of California, San Francisco. Today's topic is diabetes insipidus, specifically its diagnosis, with particular focus on diagnostic testing. As you know, diabetes insipidus is a complication affecting from 2 to 10% of pituitary patients. As a way of background, the Diabetes Insipidus Advocacy Group asked Dr. Blevins to share his opinion and knowledge on diagnosis specifically on the use of copeptin measurements in conjunction with the water deprivation and saline suppression tests. Welcome, Dr. Blevins. Uh, It's great to have this chat with you. Thank you, Jorge. As usual, it's a pleasure to join you, especially when we have very interesting topics like this to discuss for our listeners. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Why don't we get started uh, with you telling us uh, about diabetes insipidus? what it is, how do you get it, and what are the common symptoms? Diabetes insipidus is a disorder that's usually related to either deficient vasopressin secretion in response to changes or increases in plasma osmolarity, or to insufficient vasopressin action at the level of the kidney. Most of the time, patients with what we refer to as central diabetes insipidus have one or more various and sundry pituitary hypothalamic or pituitary stalk disorders. There are actually a large number of different disease processes that can cause this disorder. They're somewhat different in children versus adults. And the laundry list of things that can result in diabetes insipidus is really too long to discuss in this podcast. Most of our listeners, if they have it, will know they have it. If they're being evaluated for it, uh, we'll understand some of the things we're going to talk about today. I will add that many patients have diabetes insipidus and we don't know why. Uh, We call that idiopathic in nature. Uh, And sometimes those diagnoses will become apparent after a number of years of surveillance for an underlying cause. Diabetes insipidus is characterized by polyuria, polydipsia, and an increased sense of thirst. Well, tell us more about that. What is uh, polyuria and polydipsia? How do you define those terms? That's a very good question, Jorge. Polyuria is the passage of large amounts of urine. There's another related term called polacauria, which uh, means frequent urination. But with polyuria, we're usually referring to the passage of large amounts of urine, more urine than the person should be producing in a 24-hour period. Uh, And interestingly, they also have polyuria because they're urinating frequently. The distinction is polyuria patients will usually urinate large volumes frequently, whereas a patient with polyuria who may have a urinary tract infection will go to the bathroom fairly frequently but have small amounts of urine. Most of us think of polyuria as a spectrum. So some people have a mild degree, some a moderate, others a severe. 
The usual medical definition is anyone who passes more than 30 milliliters of urine per kilogram of body weight per day probably has polyuria. So for a 100 kilogram person that weighs 220 pounds, for example, that would be uh, literally uh, three liters of urine a day. Uh, for a 70 kilogram person, that's 2.1 liters a day. Now, it's important to keep the weight in mind because children are smaller and they may not have a large volume of urine, but it might exceed these calculations. And this is one of the reasons we use it on a, a weight basis. Also, adults are varying sizes as well. So it's best to calculate that uh, cutoff, if you will, for the definition of polyuria. Anything under that in someone who's complaining of excessive urination is probably not diabetes insipidus. Uh, but may have some other condition that makes them believe that they're passing large volumes of urine. One of the interesting things that I've noted in my patients with diabetes insipidus is that the usual adult might not really want to be treated or doesn't require treatment unless they're around three and a half to four liters of urine a day. I have plenty of people with mild diabetes insipidus who, rather than take treatment and put themselves at risk for hyponatremia, We'll just deal with the mild amounts of polyuria by drinking in response to thirst. Let me make a quick note here. If you want to learn more about hyponatremia, we have several podcasts and articles on pituitary world news. Just type uh, hyponatremia in the search icon on the upper right corner of the front page. We continue now with Dr. Blevins. Polydipsia is the ingestion of larger amounts of water than, than one would normally ingest. Water ingestion is way variable in today's society. Some people drink maybe a liter a day, other people maybe three to four liters a day. The interesting thing is if you don't have diabetes insipidus, whatever you drink you're going to pass through. We usually keep probably on order of about 90 uh, or 10 percent of what we drink uh, the other 90% is either uh, excreted in the urine, uh, evaporated across the skin, or uh, dissipated through our breath. So if you drink eight glasses of water a day for a diet or for some uh, health reasons, you're going to pee probably seven to seven and a half glasses of that water. Uh, and that's one of the interesting things to keep in mind. Some people actually have a disorder where they have psychogenic polydipsia, where they feel like they need to drink large amounts of water. They're going to pee a lot, and they'll often notice their peeing, and they'll talk to the doctor about that. Uh, and uh, in this case, it's the, the water came first, not the vasopressin problem. Because if you drink water, you're going to suppress your vasopressin. And that's uh, one of the important things we'll talk about a little later. And then, of course, thirst uh, is defined as a desire to ingest water. It's a drive, really, to ingest water. It's logarithmic. It usually comes on when your serum osmolarity is around 290, when your sodium might be 142 to 145, depending on your physiology. And it increases not linearly, but logarithmically, so that the more dehydrated you get, the more profound your thirst becomes. Thank you for those uh, clarifications. It sounds uh, more nebulous than one uh, might think, but when you are looking at a disease state and considering treatment for th that both has benefits and risk, uh, benefits and risks, you have to be careful and know precisely what you're talking about. No. 
Absolutely, and this is why we have to take a very careful history, and we'll often have patients quantify what they're drinking, uh, how much they're urinating, and we'll also get several sets of laboratory studies even before we consider more appropriate uh, potential diagnostic tests. Well, let's say that you're pretty certain that that patient has it. Maybe they had pituitary surgery or head trauma or they had sarcoidosis or something like that and uh, an, an abnormality in the hypothalamic pituitary area on MRI. What are you going to do to secure the diagnosis in those patients? Or hey, those are the easy ones. Those are the ones where they can get you the 24-hour urine volume. Uh, you can look at a urine osmolarity and find that it's dilute. And you'll check a serum sodium and find that it's close to their thirst threshold, which is usually 142 to 145. They're the easy ones. Uh, they're the ones getting up at night to urinate. They may have anywhere from 4 to 12 liters of urine a day. The most I've ever seen was 24 liters a day. Uh, I've only seen that once, and I probably will never see that severity again. But I've seen a lot of people who have 8 to 12 liters of urine a day, and they're the straightforward diagnoses that uh, respond extremely well to treatment. Well, that seems pretty uh, straightforward. Um, what about those patients that maybe or maybe not have pituitary disease, where you don't see anything on the MRI, but they complain about polyuria or polydepsia, and have a fairly convincing story, and urine output, let's say, of three or four liters a day, and of course they are drinking more water. How do you approach uh, those patients? Well, this is where the real challenge lies in making the diagnosis, regardless of age. There's a broad differential diagnosis for polyuria and polydipsia, including not only diabetes insipidus, which we're obviously talking about, but some people have psychogenic polydipsia. Others have a healthy ingestion of water. Some people eat too much salt in their diet and the kidney gets rid of that salt and with every salt molecule that it loses, water follows. So if you ingest a lot of salt, you're going to make a lot of urine. And many of these patients will have mild to moderate polyuria or polydipsia. Some of the patients with psychogenic polyuria and uh, polydipsia will actually have uh, fairly large ingestions of water. I had one patient who was planning to undergo pituitary surgery and the surgeon told her about the risk of diabetes insipidus and she was afraid she was going to get it. So she started drinking water in advance, thinking that she was going to decrease her likelihood of diabetes insipidus, uh, became very uh, polyuric as a result of water ingestion. and started peeing out the water that she didn't need and she felt like she had diabetes insipidus even before she went to surgery and uh, increased her water intake to about 12 liters a day, was urinating about 11 liters a day and it uh, resulted ultimately in hyponatremia uh, and we had to uh, basically wean her off the water to prove to her that she didn't have the disorder. Um, I've had another patient where the same thing happened postoperatively, and I've seen other people for one reason or another who had psychogenic polydipsia and polyuria with hyponatremia rather than the sodium at the level of the thirst threshold. So this is where looking at the sodium 
can help us. If we see a patient who comes in with polyuria and polydipsia and is thought to have diabetes insipidus, but there's no MRI findings and their urine output's not that great, if their serum sodium is not at their thirst threshold and they're not on vasopressin, they probably don't have the disorder. So you can tell a lot by that first initial laboratory assessment. And I'll often repeat the studies uh, in patients just to make sure uh, before I uh, opine as to whether or not I think they have the disorder and need treatment. So it sounds like uh, based on history, both physical and a few simple blood and urine tests, that you can actually diagnose most patients. Is that a, a fair comment? Yes, I believe so. In my experience of taking care of pituitary patients for over 30 years, I would say that by and large, most patients, you can either affirm or exclude a diagnosis of diabetes insipidus by history and physical examination and with a few simple laboratory tests. If you take time to learn the physiology of this disorder and understand what the body does and is doing uh, in response to water ingestion and the clinical picture that you see in patients who have either vasopressin deficiency or insensitivity, it's a fairly straightforward diagnosis in a majority of people. There are, however, those patients where you're on the cusp and the labs are indeterminate and you must proceed with additional testing. Uh, so tell us about those tests. I read about the water deprivation test. Have you ever used uh, that in your practice? The water deprivation test is an excellent tool in order to determine how the body responds to water deprivation, especially in a patient who has an increased sense of thirst and is drinking excessively. In patients who have true diabetes insipidus, depriving them from water, they should keep urinating. So if they notice that their urine output slows tremendously as they don't drink, that's a, that's a key sign that maybe they have polydipsia of a primary nature rather than diabetes insipidus. But most people with diabetes insipidus, if they stop drinking, they continue to pee until they get dehydrated. They'll become very thirsty. And um, that'll be a clue that they, that they really have diabetes insipidus. But usually uh, their urine will stay dilute. The patient who does not have diabetes insipidus, their urine will become concentrated after that period of water deprivation. What I usually do with my patients is I have them not to drink or eat anything after 11 p.m. and they come in at 8 o'clock in the morning and they get a set of labs. That is nine hours and uh, usually someone who has diabetes insipidus is not going to be profoundly dehydrated by that time. If it's a partial diabetes insipidus or something that I couldn't diagnose based on the history, physical, and initial lab studies. So usually we're doing this deprivation test in people, not those who have full-blown diabetes insipidus, but the ones where we're not sure. So it's a safe test. It's not safe to do on people with florid diabetes insipidus, but if it's mild or moderate, nine hours of water deprivation is not going to make a difference in anyone's life, especially when they're usually sleeping or maybe up a couple of times a night to pee. So we look at what's going to happen in the morning. After nine hours of depriving water, are they more hyperosmolar? Has their sodium risen? Uh, is their urine dilute or are they starting to concentrating it? And sometimes you can look at those first morning labs and determine that a patient doesn't have diabetes insipidus. But the test does continue. It continues on through the afternoon. We usually continue to check hourly urine 
output osmolarity and serum sodium levels to see what happens with further dehydration if the diagnosis isn't evident on the, on the first morning sample. And then usually in the afternoon, uh, we'll sometimes give vasopressin uh, injection to see how the kidney responds to vasopressin in a person who is dehydrated. If the urine output slows or the urine concentration starts to increase uh, in response to that, that would usually indicate that they have diabetes insipidus. If it doesn't change, they might have nephrogenic diabetes insipidus. But even uh, looking at those results afterwards, you can tell uh, who has primary polydipsia as well based on the pattern. Still, with this test, we often have some indeterminate uh, responses. Sometimes it's difficult to classify as to whether a patient has diabetes insipidus or not. Um, and those are the patients where a trial of vasopressin might be useful. Uh, or if their urine output's really not that excessive, you just instruct them to decrease their salt intake and to drink in response to thirst because, again, the drug that we use to treat diabetes insipidus can be very dangerous uh, if taken in excess, especially along with ingestion of large amounts of water. So we have a lot of teaching to do if we get to the stage of actually trying to prescribe a medication for this disorder. Let's talk about vasopressin levels and copeptin levels. So vasopressin is also known as arginine vasopressin. It's a hormone that's made in the hypothalamus part of the brain and stored in the posterior pituitary. And it's released in response to osmotic stimuli, such as dehydration. And usually we can measure that level in the bloodstream if you go through the right process to prepare the blood for the assay. The unfortunate problem is that in most clinical settings, the levels are almost always undetectable and are not useful um, because the peptide is sensitive to enzymes in the blood that just cleave it and destroy it while the blood's sitting in the lab waiting to have the assay done. So I've never found these vasopressin levels to be very useful. Copeptin is another peptide that's part of this whole process of production of vasopressin and it's stored in the posterior pituitary and released in the blood in response to osmotic and non-osmotic stimuli such as nausea or low blood pressure, low blood volume. And it is much more stable in the blood and can be measured and there are good assays now to measure copeptin. And this test might be useful at baseline uh, after you've uh, seen a patient and you think they might have diabetes insipidus, checking the copeptin level could be useful if you interpret in conjunction with serum osmolarity, serum sodium, and urine osmolarity. Um, but uh, it has been uh, explored in other ways as well. So uh, what about the use of copeptin in the water deprivation test? It has been used in water deprivation tests. It probably improves the diagnostic accuracy of the test over doing a water deprivation test without it. You were telling me that you had received an inquiry about the use of the copeptin assay and hypertonics saline infusion test uh, for diabetes insipidus. Can you tell us what your thoughts are about that particular test? So first, let me say that research has shown that the hypertonic saline infusion test and measurement of copeptin 
probably has greater diagnostic accuracy than does using uh, the water deprivation test. Unfortunately, however, I, I find that the procedure that is necessary to perform this test is probably not safe. In other words, it's dangerous. And the reason being is that the amount of hypertonic saline that one must administer to accomplish this test is astronomical. And relative to what we uh, do in clinical medicine when we use hypertonic saline, you have to use truckloads of this stuff in the possibility of diabetes insipidus relative to the amount to correct hyponatremia in patients with SIDH. To give you an example, in a patient who has severe hyponatremia due to SIDH, where we have to treat with hypertonic saline, in a patient who's comatose or having seizures or whatever, a true medical emergency, we might use anywhere between 30 to 100 milliliters of hypertonic saline in an hour. That's a lot of hypertonic saline. Most physicians would cringe at having to try to use that much medication because of the potential for a very rapid and dangerous rise in the sodium. It's really giving a lot of salt intravenously. The uh, hypertonic saline test for diabetes insipidus starts by giving 250 milliliters in about a 15 minute period of hypertonic saline huge amount of salt. And then the rate that is recommended in um, bringing the sodium up to see what happens to copeptin could result in administration in as much in some adults of 800 milliliters in, a, in the first hour, which is much higher than the 30 to 100 milliliters that we would use to treat a patient who is in severe distress with hyponatremia. So it is really large amounts of salt. Things happen with IVs. Rates get programmed to they're wrong. The control of the rate doesn't work and too much of the saline goes in at one time. And it's just so many, there's so many opportunities for things to go wrong and danger to happen given this large amount of saline to an individual, especially when they, uh, didn't have physiology that made it clear that they had diabetes insipidus in the first place. To complicate matters, after you raise the sodium, you only check it every 30 minutes, where if you're doing this test on me, I want you to know, know what it is every five minutes, but it takes two hours to get the test result back. So you might end up giving three to four hours or more of hypertonic saline before you know whether you reach the sodium goal. So I think there's even more potential for danger just in the, by the delay in the lab and not able to sort of get the information to uh, be able to stop the saline infusion when you want. But the, the next problem with the test is at the end of that, you give large amounts of uh, dextrose in water or oral water and the amounts of water you're supposed to give would be two to three liters for the average sized adult. So to, slam a physiology of a human being with all that salt and then to slam it with that much water which is supposed to be administered in a short period of time i think is is playing with fire when you think about the physiology and especially about the blood brain 
interactions and hyponatremia, how that gets into all cells and especially brain cells and can cause uh, uh, fluid um, shifts and uh, either cerebral edema or uh, cerebral shrinking. It's just not worth the risks in my mind to, to do that particular test. And I feel that probably this test shouldn't be performed. I don't recommend it. I'll never perform one. Uh, I think that usually you can diagnose diabetes insipidus with a copeptin test and water deprivation if you can't diagnose it at the outset. And if it's still unclear after that water deprivation with copeptin, then you're certainly not going to um, have a situation where a patient's going to suffer greatly from not being treated while you try to wait and see what's going to happen and figure it out. Because again, those are going to be the mild cases uh, where you're trying to really sort out in the end whether to start treatment or just follow a patient. And again, those are the mild cases. I don't think it's worth doing this uh, copeptin test with hypertonic saline to try to resolve those few number of cases uh, because of the potential risks of the diagnostic test relative to the potential benefits of treating with low doses of azopressin. In medicine, always comes down to a risk-benefit ratio. And um, that risk-benefit ratio is different uh, with different likelihoods of disease. And I certainly wouldn't take a patient who has a low likelihood of disease in that I couldn't figure it out with water deprivation or uh, baseline studies and then proceed doing a high-risk test for low-risk disease. That doesn't make any clinical sense to me whatsoever. Uh, well, that is really a fascinating perspective. I can see where it's uh, important to judge the risk and benefit when you're looking at the likelihood of diagnosis. So you don't harm people while you're trying to help them. You know, in preparing for this chat, I read somewhere that arginine might be a useful way to treat patients rather than using a hypertonic saline test. How do you feel about that? I've never tried it, probably won't. Uh, we used to use arginine as a stimulus for growth hormone uh, in testing patients for growth hormone deficiency. And that largely fell out of favor when arginine became very difficult to get for a while. I, I don't know if it's more easy to get now than it used to be. But uh, the use of arginine, which is an amino acid, to increase plasma osmolarity um, isn't going to be as straightforward as, say, using the hypertonic saline uh, because the plasma osmolarity, as we know it, is due to large numbers of different factors and different uh, substances are thought to probably have more of an effect on the uh, os osmolality centers responses to hyperosmolarity than others. Furthermore, some of these complex mechanisms of thirst uh, involve amino acids and angiotensin II system and not only sodium but these other things as well. And I don't know how it's going to impact those arenas and what that will do with the diagnostic testing. But again, I get back to the fact that most people with diabetes insipidus, you diagnose it on a history physical and some baseline laboratory studies, which you may or may not have to repeat. A majority of the rest of them where you can't sort it out, you're going to be able to sort it out with a water deprivation test. 
and even more so with water deprivation and copeptin levels. And this other group of patients, again, low, low risk of disease or mild disease and a high risk of uh, diagnostic testing and also maybe even a higher risk of treatment. So I think, again, we're talking about using an infusion for a group of people where uh, the diagnosis is probably circumspect at uh, best. Well, this has been a terrific talk. Uh, thank you, Dr. Blevins. There is a ton of helpful information we've just talked about. And as always, you do a great job of explaining very complicated issues and making them really easy to understand. So thank you. Well, thank you, Jorge. It's always a pleasure to share uh, information with our listeners uh, and especially uh, on such complex topics like uh, diabetes insipidus. My hope is that uh, something has been gained uh, from this by the listeners so they can have a, an informed conversation with their uh, physician. And I want to encourage people to look at the things that we have published on diabetes insipidus in the past because there's a lot of useful information uh, about uh, not only um, management but also self-care. Uh, so once again, uh, appreciate this opportunity uh, and uh, wish you all a very good day. You have been listening to another exclusive podcast from Pituitary World News. Thank you for listening. Thank you.